Okay, so welcome. Welcome to this week's Parsha class. And in this week's Parsha, we're going to focus the last portion. We're going to focus on how to find our own individual inner sanctuary. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's go, <clears throat> let's go over a little bit of what's going on here. So in this week's Torah portion, we have the description and the commandment of building the tabernacle. And this continues on to next week, where we're primarily focused on the garbs of the priest, the high priest, and the regular priest, the Kohanim. And there's whole discussions on how this really happened whole arguments the Zohar has one opinion others have another opinion when did God command this when did they actually build it what did this was it commanded before the way it's lined up in the Torah first we hear about the commandment of building a sanctuary then we hear about the 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 sin of the golden calf and then we actually build it and there are others that say no the whole reason for building the tabernacle was an outcome of the sin of the golden calf where god told moses let them instead of me living within their tents let them build for me a place and this way they can they can you know prepare themselves when they're ready to come to me and you know my grandmother blessed memory would tell me a phrase in yiddish what the eye doesn't see doesn't hurt the heart so obviously hashem sees everything but sometimes, even with parents and in-laws, sometimes it's best to have distance. And this way, you come, you prepare yourself, and you come for a visit, you come for a stay, and then you leave, rather than being under each other, you know, scrutiny all the time. So there's different opinions of how, of how these Torah portions are actually set up. But just that you should know that the next five Torah portions, Truma, is the commandment of building the tabernacle. Tetzave is still working on that and also on the garments of the Kohen. Kisisa, a huge parsha, but one of the main things over there that we talk about is the, the sin of the golden calf. And then we have the last two Torah portions of the book of Exodus, which is by Yakel and Pekude, which is the actual building, the actual making of the garments. Okay, with that being said, let's get into some interesting mystical stuff here. <laughs> Number one, the Torah portion is called Teruma. Teruma simply means a donation. However, there's something deeper than that. The word Teruma, our sages tells us, tell us that it stands for two words, Torah, Mem. If you took the Mem out of the word Teruma, you will have two words, Torah, Mem. Mem is the numerical value of 40, and therefore it stands for Torah, which was given to us in 40 days and 40 nights. Now, with that being said, let's look at the unique wording of the verse. God tells Moses, speak to the children of Israel, and they will take me a donation. So, first of all, what does it mean take me? The question is on the word take. Why take? They should give me. And then why take me? Take for me. And here is the teaching that says 
that when we study Torah, the Yikhuli, we are actually taking God. We are digesting God. Since the Torah, God placed himself within the Torah and the Torah descended into a physical realm where we can physically wrap our heads around it, means logically human intellect. Hence, by studying Torah, we are actually digesting God. Now, what's amazing about this is that when we, when we do a mitzvah, the law is that we're supposed to stand for someone that's doing a mitzvah. Being that a mitzvah is the emissary of God, it's the commandment of God. So we stand up while they're doing the mitzvah. Torah study, however, not only do you stand up for a person while they're studying Torah, but you stand up for a scholar who has studied Torah. Why? Because let's just take, for example, as long as the tefillin are on my hand and head, they're on my hand and head. When I take them off my hand and head, they're no more on my hand and head. And they did not create a, a, a physiological change in my head or my hand. When we study Torah, so even when we're not studying Torah, the knowledge is still within our brain. You can ask a question and the person will be able to answer you because it's not just while they're studying the knowledge is there, but even when they finish studying, they have absorbed the knowledge. Even more than that, we now understand through thoughts, we actually create a physiological change in the mass, in the weight of the brain, and in the neuron connections of the brain, neural connections, the synaptic connections. Hence, the Torah truly becomes one and one part and parcel with us, which is why in the prophets and explained in Kabbalah and Hasidis, Torah is called mazan, it's called sustenance, food, which we eat and becomes our flesh and blood. Mitzvot are garments. We don't become our garments. Now, you know, I just want to share with you, we're going to talk about this later. You know, we're talking about building the tabernacle. So why are we talking about the word truma has to do with studying Torah? So we'll talk later that there's an argument between two of the famous codifiers. What is the primary purpose of the the Mishkan and the Bet HaMikdash, the tabernacle and the holy temple. Is it the holy ark in the holy of holies, which has the Torah? For it is called the tent in which, from which God will talk to us. And another opinion is that the primary part of the holy temple and the tabernacle is actually the altar and not the altar of the incense, but primarily the outside altar of sacrifice because the whole purpose of the Mishkan and the Migdash, as we mentioned after, in the aftermath of the golden calf, is all about being able to do repentance. Repentance, teshuva, happens by the altar. Okay, with that being said, let's go through the, the, the portion. Now, I want to just share with you, do a search online, do a search in Chabad.org called Mishkan. You'll have unbelievable pictures. You'll even have they have now a 3D video of walking you through the Mishkan, the tabernacle, walking you through the Holy Temple. So it is really a lot, a lot. When I was a child um, in Borough Park, I remember every year they would rent a hall and they would actually make a miniature model 
of the put together a miniature model of the tabernacle and every school would book and they would take their classes there make reservations and we would go through it it's just a different total different concept when you see it in front of you tangibly so yeah really it's really important to to go ahead and, and actually get a visual now with that being said the donations there's an argument how you count the articles whether they're listing 13 or 15 um, but either way, it lists off immediately which articles are needed, are going to be needed to make the holy tabernacle and the garments. And it lists you off which to bring, which materials, which precious stones, which uh, gold, silver, everything which you need. Now, I want to just share briefly that when the Torah says, Va'asuli Migdash, and you shall make for me a sanctuary. Our sages say, Mishkan Ikri Migdash, the tabernacle that was built by Moses is also called a sanctuary. The only difference is that the sanctuary in the desert had to be made to be able to disassemble and move. Later on, when it gets to Israel and Joshua enters into Israel, then there's different stages there's a stage of 369 years. There was Shiloh, and in Shiloh already, it was a little change. The walls weren't portable, but the roof was. And then later, there was another two places where it was, and then later it ended up finally in Jerusalem. King David brought it to the Jerusalem, and once it was built in Jerusalem, it never left Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there was Temple Number 1 that was built by King Solomon, and that lasted until the destruction of the temple, which happens, the holiday coming up, Purim, we're going to have to talk about that in a moment. So it happened actually right before Purim, Purim, uh, 70 years before Purim. And uh, the Queen Vashti, her grandfather was actually the one that destroyed the Holy Temple, Nebuchadnezzar. And then later on, it was rebuilt by Esther's son, some say grandson, but uh, later on, it was rebuilt and then it stood for another 410 years. And that was the second temple after which we went into exile. And we never had a temple, um, uh, a holy temple until Mashiach is going to come. So when it says, you shall make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell within them. So obviously our sages want to know, you start off singular, make for me a sanctuary. And then you go to plural and I shall dwell within them. Who's the them? So simply speaking, our sages say that them, God is already prophesizing that there's going to be the tabernacle, the first temple, the second temple, and then finally the eternal third temple. There's another opinion of our sages, which says, when you make for me a sanctuary, I will dwell amongst them. Them means each and every one of you. And hence we have the amazing teachings that every single person is a holy temple and all the parts of the temple represent different parts of the human being. We have the holy ark in which there's the Torah, the, 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 the Ten Commandments, the tablets, that's the brain. We have the altar, which is the heart. In the heart itself, there's an outer heart, an inner heart, the outer altar, the inner altar. There's the table. The table is the... Um, the table is the stomach. Then you have the menorah, which is all our different emotions through which we illuminate. 
So there really is great teachings about every single part of it. What's the silver sockets and what's the, the beams and everything is explained. So it's built on this concept in which we, we interpret the verse to mean that by making a sanctuary, we also mean to make of ourselves a sanctuary for God to dwell within us. The next verse tells us clearly that God showed Moses everything while he was at Mount Sinai. And now we begin to have the, the uh, descriptions of the different um, uh, furniture, different uh, pieces that were in the Holy Temple. So just to understand a cubit, there's huge different opinions what a cubit is. Um, you can look it up, also do a Google search, you'll see different opinions. Um, you know, it's anywhere between a foot, a foot and a half, 18 inches or two feet. That's generally speaking. Um, in Chabad, actually follow, the Alter Rebbe, I believe, follows the opinion of, of uh, 18 inches. Now, let's talk about the Ark. The Ark was made up of three boxes. There was an outer gold box, an inner gold box, and in between, the middle was made out of hard wood. Because if you would make a box just built out of gold, such a soft material, it wouldn't be good. So you have the three boxes so that all you see from the outside and the inside is gold. However, the sturdiness comes from the wood, which is within it. Now, it gives you the exact measurements of two and a half, the, uh, the length, then there's the width one and a half, and there's the height one and a half. Now, there, the, within the ark, within the holy ark, there are different opinions and everything. Simply speaking, there was a tablet. Some say only the whole tablet, some the whole tablets and the broken tablets. And then that was the only piece of furniture, so to speak, that was placed in the back room. Now, the, the, the holy ark had a crown. It had four golden rings attached to it. In the rings were placed bars wooden bars that again were covered by gold. And that's the way the four Kohanim would carry it when they had to, when they had to uh, travel. So you have the box, you have the, the, the poles, one person, one person, one person, one person on the shoulder, and that's how they, they would carry it. And then on top of that, there was the cherubim. Now I say, you wanna know what the cherubim means? What's the exact meaning of the word? Kruvim, and they, they, they learn it out from the word kravya, which means a human, a, a child's face. And then according to Kabbalah, one had a more adult face, one had a more child face, and they would face each other with the wings uh, reaching up. Now, that was made, there was a flat piece of gold, which was one hand breadth, and it was the exact square, the two and a half by the one and a half, and that went right on top. And then on, from that came protruding out of one piece, those two cherubim. Now, gonna give you some mystical stuff here quickly. There is an interesting teaching in the Talmud and it tells us as follows, that the width of the room was 10 cubits by 10 cubits. Now, if you place in the center of the room a box, a holy ark, which is two and a half by two and a half, by one and a half by one and a half, then obviously when you measure from the edges of the two and a half length, 
to the wall. So do your math. 10 and a half minus two and a half is seven and a half. That means that there should only be spaced three and three quarters on each side. When you measure from the one and a half size, so let's do that. What are you gonna have? You're gonna have 10 minus one and a half. You're gonna have over there eight and a half. Eight and a half divided in two is four and a quarter. So when you measure it from the outer side of the box, the arm to the wall, there should have been four and a quarter on one side, four and a quarter on the other side. And nevertheless, our sages tell us not so. There was something miraculously that took place, miraculous that took place there. What took place? When you measured from, fall, from wall to wall, it was 10. When you measured from wall to arc, it was five. The arc was two and a half. You measured from the arc to the wall, it was five. That means do your math, it should have been 12 and a half. But nevertheless, when you measure from wall to wall, it was only 10. And the same thing in the opposite direction. It was four and a half plus one and a half plus four and a half. And yet when you measure from wall to wall, it was only 10. So it was five, I'm sorry, it was five, one and a half, five. But when you measure from wall to wall, it was 10. Hence, we have the Talmud tells us that it is a tradition that was handed down that the ark was made up of a measurement, but took up no measurement. So the ark had to be two and a half by one and a half by one and a half. However, it did not take up any space within the 10 cubits of the Holy of Holies. And there's huge Kabbalistic the insights of what that means. And, and basically, it's all about this concept in which our sages learn out from a verse that God said, I am the place of the world and not the world is my place. Meaning that ultimately speaking, the world, which is the finite dimension of space, does not, does not, it's not what houses God, but rather it exists within God, which means within space, there's the genetics of that which is beyond space and that manifested itself within the Holy of Holies. Now, another interesting thing. There are two different verses of how the cherubim would face. One says they faced each other this way. And then there's another verse that said that the tips of the wings were poking out the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy. So that would mean it faced this way. And yet the verse says they faced each other one to its brother. Our sages tell us that even though it was solid gold, nevertheless, a miracle happened when God was happy with our behavior, they would face each other. When God was less than happy with our behavior, they would face forward. Okay. So much for the ark, the holy ark. Going on quickly, we're going to move quickly through. Um, God tells us, God tells Moses that when he speaks to Moses, it will come from in between the two poles of the holy ark. And basically our sages tell us what would happen is that the voice of God would, would call out from the holy of holies between the poles of the holy ark. They would, the voice would carry until the front of the, of the, the tabernacle. It would not go out from the tabernacle. Moses would hear it from wherever he is. He would come to the tabernacle and that's where God spoke to him. Now, the next thing we talk about is the table. Now, the table has a very interesting, it seems to be just a simple table. However, that table is where the showbreads were. 
So what would happen is that you had a table and then coming from both sides of the table were poles that came up. So you would have three poles, three poles and half pipes connecting them, making five shelves. So there were 12 breads, you would have one on the table and then you'd have the five shelves. And then on the other side, you would again have the three poles, the three poles, half pipes connecting them. And you would have again, one on the table and then the next five shelves. So that was where the table was and how it was made. Again, the table also had the poles that went in to carry it. And it also had a crown and it also had something else called a misgeret. It was like a, a wrap around it and different opinions where that wraparound was at the top or on the bottom by the feet, but it's very detailed. And again, all of this is made from acacia wood, which is um, covered with gold. And then we have the menorah. Now the menorah is unique because the menorah does not have any wood for sturdiness. It is just pure solid gold, which has to be of a certain weight, a kikar, and then they would bang out. You weren't allowed to make pieces and chisel it together and, and solder it together. It had to be banged out of one piece of gold. Now the Torah is very, very exact in what different types of adornments were banged out of the gold. You had three types of adornments. You had adornments. You had a upside down cup, like a, then you had a button and then you had a flower. It tells you exactly where to put each adornment. You couldn't make it any more or any less. It had to be exact. The height was 18 tfachim, 18 handbreadths. Hand we say a handbreadth is about 14 of uh, four inches. So if you do 18 times four, you'll have that it was 72 inches high. And that was lit. That was the menorah and that was lit. Now, just to share with you, there's a lot of Kabbalah about the menorah. And basically it boils down to that there are seven different types of souls, meaning that every soul has its primary source of emotion. So you have the sage Hillel, who was always kind and compassionate. You had the sage Shammai, which was always strict and justice and so forth and so on. And why were these souls different? Because each soul comes from a different branch of the menorah. Hence, there are seven different emotions in Kabbalah. Hence, each soul has their own compilation of the emotions and they have their primary emotion. Hence, the menorah really, really represents the entire Jewish people. With this, you're going to understand an amazing teaching. It says that Niskashe Moshe, Moshe couldn't figure out how to make the menorah to the point where God showed him a fiery menorah, an image, and still Moshe Bena couldn't make the menorah. So God told Moses, take the measurement of gold, throw it into the fire, and I will make it. Hence, by everything it says, and they made, and they made, but when it comes to the menorah, it says it was made. Now, why was Moses having such a problem out of everything with the menorah? Why? And one of the amazing teachings, insights that I heard in the teachings of Hasidus is because Moses didn't understand how could it be 
that there are seven different types of souls, different types of people. And amongst them, you have antithetical types of people. And nevertheless, God is saying, make it out of one piece of gold, not just make it and solder it together, but make it out of one piece of gold. In other words, the unity should not be just that of tolerance, but the unity should be of a true oneness between antithetical mindsets and paradigms and souls and emotions. Hence, Moses didn't know how to do that. And God told him the secret. Throw it into the fire and it'll happen. Now, fire in Kabbalah represents love. What does that mean? What God is telling Moses, when antithetical opinions in religion realize that they're all fighting for the same cause, and I don't want to use the word fighting, they're all serving the same cause. It's all about the love of God. Hence, even though you have such opposite opinions and you believe that your opinion is right, but you know that the other person is coming from the very same place from which you're coming. Hence, differences doesn't have to necessarily mean separation and lack of unity. Not only can there be tolerance between differences of opinion when it comes to religion, there can be an absolute respect and unity. Hence, I want to briefly and quickly share with you an amazing teaching. There is an argument between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai concerning a certain religious get, a divorce, whether it's kosher or not. The school of Hillel says it's kosher. The school of Shammai says it's not kosher. Now, let me share with you what this means. What is the ramifications of this? What this means is that in the school of Hillel, where the people, you know, in his, in his um, dominion, where the people would follow his opinion, if they did such a type of religious divorce, the woman would be considered divorced. She would get remarried to someone else if she wanted, and she would have children from the new husband. Now, according to Shammai, the school of Shammai says this, this get, this divorce is not a legal divorce. It's not kosher. If it's not kosher, then she was never divorced. She's a married woman. And as a married woman, she had children with someone else. According to the Torah, if a married woman has a child from another man, not her husband, the child is an illegitimate child. And an illegitimate child has certain rules. Can't marry a regular Jew, can't marry. It's a whole big problem. So according to Shammai, there were students of Hillel who they felt, according to the Torah, were illegitimate childs, plain and simple, bastards. And therefore, their own camps should have never married anyone from the camp of Hillel, because you never know. Nevertheless, the Talmud tells us that Shammai and Hillel, their students, married amongst themselves, each one with each other. Why? Because Shammai's opinion was, if you're my student, this isn't kosher. But if you're Hillel's student... Hillel is worthy enough and knows well enough the Torah that if he gives this ruling, then as a student of his, you're allowed to do what he says and we will honor it even though we won't honor it when it comes to our own. That means that we won't allow our students to do that type of divorce. But if you 
did it because you're a student of Hillel, we will marry into your family and will allow you to marry into our family. Hence, the secret is when it's not about the ego, when it's not about manipulation to be right and the other person wrong, but rather it's about the love of God and serving God and knowing that God has in his menorah seven branches, not just one candle, seven illuminations through which to understand his Torah. Hence, we'll have unity. Okay, let's move along then. So we discussed so far the golden holy ark. We discussed the golden table. We discussed the golden menorah. Now, just that you should know, eventually later, we're going to discuss the golden altar for the incense. And just that you should know, we're going to talk about it in a moment. But let me give you an intro. The holy, the tabernacle and so to the holy temple, the primary part of it, the holy temple then had much more, but the primary part of it was made up of two rooms. One is called the Holy of Holies and one is called the Holy. Within the Holy of Holies, there was only the, the holy ark, the tablets. There was a Sefer Torah placed there on a shelf. There was the staff which Aaron used, which sprouted almonds there was a jar of manna there. Now, just that you should know, taking you further into history, when the king saw, later I'm talking about in the times of, 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 uh, in the times of the destruction of the first temple, when the king saw that there was going to be a destruction, he took the golden ark and he hid it because King Solomon already built in, when he first built the temple, he built in the temple mount tunnels and caves which would be able to house the, the the holy ark hence everyone agrees that the holy ark was never captured also there's one opinion that says everything was duplicated and the originals were all hidden but they were all duplicated because if the Babylonians would not have been able to take back what they thought were the vessels, they would have never stopped. So they make duplicates for them to take into the Vatican, take it back to Rome and Babylon, and then the real stuff is all hidden. There's another opinion that says, no, only the Holy Ark, the rest, they actually took the real, the real stuff. Now, with all that being said, you should know that Moses built the tabernacle. King Solomon built the holy temple. Everything that was made by Moses was never captured and never destroyed. It was all placed in hiding because King Solomon made everything new from new dimensions. Okay, then we start talking about the two rooms. The back room from the front room was separated by a curtain. Now, there were different stages. In the tabernacle, it was only a curtain later on in, in Shiloh, and then later on, there was a time where there was two curtains and they would walk through it this way. Then there was a time, there was a wall, there was different, uh, different stages. But in the tabernacle, there was a curtain that was woven, that stood on poles, that served as a separation between the Holy of Holies and the Holy. In the front room, in the Holy, there was three objects. There was the, the table, there was the menorah, and then there was the golden altar. Now, the Kohanim in the times of service were allowed to go into the holy. No one, but no one was allowed to go into the holy of holies other than the holy priest on Yom Kippur. Even when things had to be fixed, they were put into a box with only one side open 
and they were lowered right to where they had to fix so that they wouldn't see anything else. And as you know, even when the holy priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would go with incense so that the smoke would cover everything so he himself didn't see it either. Now, how were the roofs and the walls made? So the roof was made out of three curtains. They made curtains, rugs, and what they did was they had 10 pieces. The 10 pieces were then sewn together, five and five. Then they had loops on the edge and they had hooks. So you had the five and the five and you hooked them together. The first one was smaller than the second one. The second one on top of it was actually 11. It was six and five, six sewn together, five sewn together, hooked. Now, and then on top of that, there was a piece that went exactly on the roof, which means it was, it was 10 by 30 because you had the Holy of Holies 10 by 10, the front room 10 by 20, which means it was 10 by 30. Now, what happens is that the way this was laid down, because it was made so long and so wide, they actually went on top of the roof and hung down from three sides. The second one was even longer, so it went on the top. It hung down and like a bride's train, it went on the ground and then on the two sides. And in the front, there was a little lip leaning, leaning over. The front did not have the curtain, the front, the, the roof. Rather, it had, a, again, a curtain which was on poles that served as an entranceway, as a door. Now, it tells you specifically what to make each one out of. What were the walls made out of? The walls were made again out of wooden beams, which were 10 by one by one and a half. And that was a huge piece of solid wood. Um, again, if you say it's a foot and a half, that's 15 feet tall by, by, uh, by a foot and a half by, a, by, a, by two and a quarter. That might be off there. But either way, it was a solid piece of wood that was, had gold on it. It, had, it was gold plated. And then on the bottom, it had two legs. And on top, it had two slits. Now, the way it would work is there were shoes for each one of these. And then when you put two beams together, you would put a ring to lock in the two slits and the same thing on this side. And then they had poles on the outside connecting them. And there was one pole through the center that went through. So that's how the walls were portable. They were put together, held in place, and then able to be taken apart. Also, you should know that there was a courtyard around the entire, the entire, um, the entire Mishkan, and a lot of things took place in that courtyard. It was in that courtyard in front of the of the tabernacle. Um, that means on the east side, in which there was the altar for which they brought the sacrifices. And then it tells us how to make the outside altar. The outside altar was called the earthen altar. It was made out of copper. It was hollow. They would fill it up with earth and then you would have the top. And again, they had the poles and how it was to be carried. And then you have the courtyard, which was made by poles and like a netting, which went all the way around from, from like a little bit in the front and then like this. And then you had a door here. So you couldn't see in, you'd walk around this way. Okay, the next thing I wanted to tell you is that there also was, in this week's Torah portion, 
We also talk about the Shabbat before Purim. We discuss the Torah portion, which talks about how the Amalekites attacked us. And when they attacked us, Joshua was sent out to fight war with them. He weakened them. He did not annihilate them. And God says that we should never forget what they did and we should eradicate Amalek. Now, today, there's no such thing as eradicating a nation because we don't even know who Amalek is. What we do know is that we refer to people that are just riddled with, with just baseless hatred. We refer to them as Amalek. Now, why do we read the story of Amalek on the Shabbat before Purim? And the reason is because Haman is called Haman Ha'agagi. Now, the word Agagi refers to the king of Amalek, which Samuel the prophet slayed. His name was Agag. Hence, we know that right the night before Agag was slain, he actually got a woman pregnant that had a child, and hence Amalek was never completely eradicated. Haman is a descendant of the king Agag of the people of Amalek. Hence, when Haman and his 10 sons were hung for what they tried to do to the Jews, to kill the Jews, that, that is the fulfillment of this commandment to eradicate these hateful people, Amalek, which therefore we read the Torah portion of Zachor. Remember what Amalek did before the story of Purim. Okay. Oof. That is that for the story. And, and by the way, there are times I gave sermons and classes. What, what does it mean to eradicate a people? What, 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 that's so not Jewish. It's not. But um, not for tonight. All I could tell you is what it means metaphorically to us. Amalek represents chutzpah. Amalek represents apathy, coldness. Amalek represents doubt. And these are the things that we have to eradicate from within ourselves. Now let's talk about the topic of how do we make our own inner sanctuary. So what's interesting is that sanctuary, in order to define the sanctuary, we have to have walls that separate the outside from the inside. In other words, if you have no walls to your house, then you have no house. The job of the walls is to define the parameters of your house. But the only way to define the parameters of your house is by having that which is outside of the parameters and that which is inside the parameters. So someone who has no boundaries in which this is my personal space. And no, you cannot enter my personal space. You need my permission to enter my personal space. And then I choose who and who not, where you're allowed in my personal space, and for how long you're allowed to be in my personal space. One who cannot do that for himself cannot have an inner sanctuary because there's going to be a subway station with everyone marching right through it. Hence, 
we find an interesting concept that in defining the tabernacle and the holy temple, the first thing you find is that there are boundaries being set until where the Israelites allowed to go, until where the Levites allowed to go, until where the Kohen is allowed to go, when the Kohen is allowed to go, and when he's not allowed to go, how he has to prepare himself to go. And then there's the Holy of Holies where no one's allowed to go. And only once a year can the high priest go. So I want to share it with you this way. If you have a studio apartment for a heart, you really don't have a sanctuary because you're not defining who can go how far and when and how they can go how far. But rather the minute the person steps into the foyer, he's already in your bedroom, in your kitchen, in your everything. And that means you have no sanctuary. You have no inner sanctuary. Hence, there is the importance to be able to create a huge complex of your heart in which there's different spaces and different places for different people. There's a place in your heart where only God exists, not even your spouse. There's a place in your heart where only you, you and God exist, not even your spouse and your children. And then there's the spouse and the children and the relatives and the siblings and the friends. And it goes on and on and on. But someone who doesn't know how to say no, if people get to invite themselves into your life without you inviting them into your life, then we have no inner sanctuary. What we need to have is places in ourselves which define who goes where. And if there isn't a place within yourself where absolutely no one, not your children, not your spouse, not your significant other, no one is there but you, then you don't have an inner sanctuary. In other words, if you don't have a holy of holies within yourself, you don't have an inner sanctuary. And now let's talk about the two primary places that I mentioned before, the argument between Nachmanides and Maimonides, the, the holy ark and the altar. The holy ark represents your mind. The altar represents your heart. When you allow other people and, and I, I'm treading very lightly here because I myself am going through stuff. When there isn't a place in your mind where you say, I think and I focus upon my own inner child. If your mind is consistently obsessing about someone else, something else, and I can't find peace, until I have that someone else or that something else, then you don't have a holy, of a, hol a holy of holies. And if you don't have a holy of holies, you do not have a sanctuary. When we talk about the altars, the heart, there are two altars. There's the outer altar and the inner altar. 
The outer altar is accessible to relationships. It's, re it's accessible to people making amends in their relationship. We bring sacrifices, sin offerings, ask forgiveness, bring gifts. However, it is also an inner altar. The inner altar was used for the incense. And our sages tell us that fragrance is not the pleasure of the body, but rather the pleasure of the spirit. Hence, there's a place within my heart which doesn't need to have a relationship with anyone in order to be able to have an inner sanctuary of self. And with this, I'm going to end by quoting the epiphany moment that I sent out today. It is the month of joy. To have joy, you have to have freedom. To have freedom, we need to give up manipulating outcomes. And in order to be able to give up manipulating outcomes, we have to need no one and nothing to be able to feel at peace with ourselves and in love with ourselves. Hence the Holy of Holies, hence the inner altar in which, in which it really doesn't make a difference to me whether you do or don't want to come along with me, be with me, agree with me. It really doesn't make a difference in those deepest spots. In those deepest spots, I have myself, you have yourself, I accept you for who you are without any need of changing you, of having you agree to anything of mine. And I need the same thing in return from you. Hence, we now understand the depth of a true inner sanctuary, a true place where I can exist alone, just God and me, me and God. And that is in the Holy of Holies, my mind, my mind needs to work on understanding that ultimately, ultimately, I need to be with myself, my inner child, and be okay. And so too with the inner altar, the inner heart. People, thank you.